We come back to this uh, section of Thessalonians dealing with the issue of moral purity, sexual purity. We spent some time last week outlining how desperate is the state in our society when it comes to this issue of, of immorality. We're in a world that tries to celebrate its sexual freedom while all the time it is really in a kind of bondage a bondage to sexual immorality, a bondage to pornography, a bondage to abuse, a bondage that has devastating effects on the family, on mental and emotional health, on economic health, even on worker productivity, on a number of of areas where this bleeds out into society. And of course, we all grieve to see the downgrade of society around us, but we're grieved even more it seems by a rising generation within the church that is capitulating to what's going on around them. No longer willing, it seems, to bear the burden of the biblical mandate towards purity. They give in to the low standard of sexual impurity around them and sort of throw up their hands in surrender to what they feel like are the overwhelming temptations. And perhaps it's a consequence of a society that is conditioned not to have to go through extended battles. They are are conditioned to expect kind of immediate gratification. No one wants to wait for anything anymore. They want everything downloaded at fiber optic speeds. And and so it's generated a culture that doesn't want to wait for anything. It it affects their view even of sanctification, their view of self-restraint of temperance and abstinence. They look for uh, all uh, the, the benefits of sanctification, but not wanting really to go through much of the sacrifice. Particularly, they hear the ideals of sexual purity presented in Scripture and imagine that it's not really realistic anymore. It's not really, uh, uh, in the modern times, something that's conceivable. And young men and young women have a tendency to rationalize as, as well as uh, any older married men and married women to rationalize their way around the biblical mandates. They begin to ask themselves or think to themselves, you know, how, ra- how bad could this really be? I mean, if I'm really in love with this person, I really feel committed to them, how, how bad could it really be if I engage in some sort of standard of sexual impurity that was perhaps held by a previous generation. Or they tell themselves, everyone else is really doing this, and they don't seem to be suffering any consequences. Or they, or they tell themselves, you know, it's just going to be this one time and then never again. Or, or maybe they convince themselves that this is actually going to help them. It's going to help them in the struggle they might have in their relationship, or help them in their own mental state or, or whatever it might be. This is some sort of outlet for them to cope with whatever they're going through. They tell themselves all of these kinds of lies to rationalize their way towards a standard of, of immorality that's acceptable to the world around them. Or they just conclude, as I said, that the temptations are, are ultimately too strong. The outlets are too many. No one could really stand up to this. Well, we've been looking at a passage of Scripture that comes as a kind of rebuke to all of that thinking. And it confronts all of those deceptions and shines the pure light of God's Word on this issue. 
and cuts through all the fog of that kind of talk with the singular, crystal clear message of God. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. This, you remember, is Paul's message to a church in the first century, which was every bit as surrounded by impurity as we are in our own day. It was a debauched and degenerate time, poisoned in his view of sexuality, low standards all around. As one modern writer said, it's difficult to feel a sense of guilt and shame over sexual immorality in the presence of the gods of Greece and Rome. I mean, their very gods were celebrated for their immoral behavior. Their temples were filled with prostitutes for the sake of of some sort of religious rituals. So there was virtually no standard of sexual restraint and and the society was dominated by this idea of laxity and freedom. In fact, it was considered unreasonable that you would expect any man to devote himself just to one woman for his entire life. So as Paul writes this, he was fully aware that what he's writing into, what he is confronting, is contrary to everything else that the believers would be hearing, and yet he doesn't, he doesn't waver one iota. God's will is undeniable, plain, and certain that you abstain from sexual immorality. doesn't matter what's going on in the culture around you. doesn't matter what the temptations are that are in front of you. doesn't matter what standards are accepted by your peers and your friends. God's will and God's standard is unmistakable. Now that statement in verse 3 comes in the midst of this section where Paul is laying out a broader appeal... And, and a broader instruction for God's design regarding sexual purity, or as we called, uh, called this section, a purity that pleases God. And we, we launched into this last week, not only noting the calls to purity, but noting the tools that are given to us here to battle the temptations towards impurity and to be or or define contentment and satisfaction with God's design for sexual purity. Last week we noted the first of four basic principles that arise out of the text here from Paul's appeal to them, and it is the fact that we maintain and protect our purity by continuous instruction. Paul understood this, that if you're going to maintain and protect your purity, it's going to come not by a a lesson that you get when you first enter the Christian life and then no longer hear about. It's going to come by continual reminders. And so he says to them in verses 1 and 2, Brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding them of what they already received, what he already told them from the very beginning. Instruction that he had given to them at the very outset of their Christian life. And yet he knows it's necessary for him to remind them again. 
Because Paul understood the nature of sexual temptation. He understood the call to purity is a constant call and the battle for, for purity is incessant. As we said, people today don't want to hear that message. They're in a world of instant gratification. They don't want to think that sanctification is a long-term process. They want an instantaneous moment in which they're suddenly made free from all the, all the, uh, the, the guilt and all of the struggle and all of the pain of seeking out sanctification. Sanctification will happen in an instantaneous moment at the return of Christ. When you see Him face to face, you'll be like Him. You'll be characterized by all of His holiness and trust in Him and humility and all the good fruit that comes from righteousness. But in the meantime, it is a day-by-day, ongoing journey. It's a journey whose final destination doesn't arrive until Christ comes or until you see Him in heaven. It is a process and it comes and it's aided under the Word of God. It is sanctified, you are sanctified I should say, by the common or, or by the uh, continual exposure to the truth. As Jesus prays for His disciples in John 17, God sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Paul understood this. He understood that if you're going to experience sanctification, you had to hear continually these reminders so that you can meditate constantly on the truth. That's why Scripture memory is such a tool for sanctification, such a tool even for battle against sexual temptation, that you fill your mind with the truth. So this is the first principle that we picked up on last week, and Paul puts to us here this constant reminder and instruction. Secondly, we find here in this passage that we maintain and protect our purity by controlling your body. You maintain and protect purity by controlling your body, as opposed to letting your body control you, as opposed to Letting your passions control you. In fact, Paul sets it in contrast with the Gentiles who do that very thing. He says in verse 3, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is God's will. God's will is that you be sanctified, that you be set apart from sin. And that obviously has many avenues of life, sanctified in your speech, sanctified in your thought life, sanctified in your stewardship, sanctified in your, in your witness. There's lots of avenues where God's will is that you continue to progress and grow, but His focus in this particular passage is on this idea of sexual purity and he expands on it the sanctification the saying that God's will is clear that you abstain from immorality and then he immediately gives these clarifying statements the first one in verse 4 that you know how to control your body in holiness and honor each one of these sort of statements sort of unfolds Next to the other, just, just expanding on this whole idea of sanctification and sanctification and sexual purity and all that meaning that you need to control your, your body. 
The wording is a little bit difficult and it's led to some debate. Some people translate, or the word actually itself for body is the word for vessel. And uh, the word for control could be translated acquire. And so some people have understood this to be a vessel being your wife that you need to acquire a wife. That you abstain from sexual immorality by acquiring a wife. But the language that Paul uses here, the the language of a vessel would be quite unusual for Paul to use in reference to a wife. In fact, he gives that kind of instruction in 1 Corinthians 7 without any kind of mysterious or puzzling language. He simply says, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her, her own husband. So when Paul found the need to exhort people towards the grace of marriage, when he wanted to speak about the need for a man to acquire a wife or a wife to acquire a a husband, he said it in plain and simple language. Doesn't seem to be characteristic of Paul to sort of put that in mysterious terms. I don't think Paul's talking about that grace of marriage in this particular passage, I think when he uses the word vessel, he's talking about our bodies. Like he, like he speaks to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work, so flee youthful passions. So I think Paul's using vessel in the same sense here. He's using vessel in the sense of your your body. And he's saying you need to understand how to control your own vessel, how to control your own body in holiness and honor. In other words, you need to understand self-discipline. You need to understand self-restraint. You need to grow in how you work that out in your life. It's a process, he says. It's a process of learning, it's a process of understanding, and you need to grow in that. It's not going to happen, in other words, without effort. It's not going to happen without understanding and without ongoing pursuit of that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, you may remember Paul says of his own battle in the Christian life, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after I preach to others, I I myself should be disqualified. Literally, I beat my body and keep it under control. This sometimes has been misunderstood by some uh, strands of Christianity who take take on a a sort of uh, idea of of penance where you have to go out there and, and beat yourself with whips and flagellate yourself and do all these things in order to subdue the flesh. Paul's not talking about a literal beating of his body, but he's talking about in a spiritual sense, he brings his body under control. And this is Paul, you remember, writing about 20 years after he had met Christ, maybe 22, 23 years after he met Christ, and more than a decade in ministry, and yet he understands that sanctification demands constant effort, constant discipline. It, in, it involves keeping your body under, contra- under restraint and under control. It's a struggle that isn't over in a moment and will only be won as you engage in the battle. That passage, Paul actually uses the metaphor of an athlete who he, 
he pictures as competing for a prize. And he has this image of, of all of the amount of time that they put in in training themselves for that one moment to compete. The, the, the weeks and months and sometimes years of denial to their body and to their flesh of certain kinds of foods and certain kinds of, of leisure and certain kinds of comforts. All of them striving for that momentary prize. How much more for us who are striving for eternal rewards? We ought to be involved in disciplining ourselves in the same way. An athlete doesn't show up at the track the first day and win the race without having done all of the preparatory work. And so you can't expect to win your battle without this kind of effort. And it involves sacrifice. Romans 12.1, Paul defines it as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's not a popular message in an instant gratification world. No one wants to hear about self-discipline, self-control, self-restraint. They want to read a book They want to hear a message, they want to have some sort of inspiring story told to them, and then everything in a moment becomes clear, and they're just free from all temptation. But it doesn't work that way. This is the will of God. This is the only biblical definition of sanctification. The only biblical definition of sanctification. This message of self-restraint. That's why Jesus said, don't look on a woman, lust after her in your heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it from you and throw it away. It's better for you to lose an eye than your whole body to be thrown into hell. He gave those words right in the context of sexual sin in a stark language there's hyperbolic language jesus wasn't uh, suggesting that you pull out a knife when you go home and go you know to so, sort of some sort of self-surgery what he's saying is that this battle will be won only by radical measures taking aggressive measures to bring your body under control heath lambert has an excellent little book on battling pornography. It's called Finally Free. And he talks about what some of these radical measures would be like in that battle. He mentions three. He talks about radical measures in your thought life, radical measures in your time, and radical measures in your exposure to pornographic material. He says you need to discipline yourself, first of all, in your thought life so that you do not put off repentance. You repent constantly in the midst of the temptation as you face it in the moment the initial moment of temptation you stop you confess to the lord the penalties that you deserve because of where your heart is taking you and the grace that you need in order to stand up against that temptation and you ask for god's forgiveness for what is already being manifested in your heart 
So you discipline yourself in your thoughts, take radical measures there. Secondly, you take radical measures, he says, in your time, limiting the amount of time where you would be isolated or tempted or in a position to engage in any kind of sexual sin. Limit the time when you would be without accountability. Have your friends uh, call you, be around friends when you need to be. Or thirdly, he says, discipline yourself in your exposure Meaning that if you have access, cut it off. If you have devices that are tempting, put filters on them or get rid of them totally. Just excise everything from your life that could be an avenue towards sin. These are the practical things that Paul has in mind, I believe, when he talks about bringing your body under control. Beating your body into a place where you can pursue the Lord with purity. So much of the battle of temptation is simply not putting yourself in the place of temptation. It's like the foolish man we read about in Proverbs 7. It says he lacked sense. Why? Because he was walking along the way of the adulterous woman. He put himself in a place where he would face temptation he was unprepared to handle so paul says we need to learn to do this we need to learn to control our bodies he says control it in holiness which is simply a word for being dedicated to god uh, dedicating your body to him and the word honor which basically means value or worth control your Control your body in a way that reflects or perceives or even pursues value and honor and worth. Now think about what he's saying there. He's not obviously talking about what is valued by the culture around them. No one really placed honor on sexual fidelity in in Paul's age. He's not talking about what's honorable to the community around you. He's talking about a kind of worth and value that is, that is according to God's design for life lived according to His truth. He's talking about value in your life the way that God has described it. It's interesting. Listen to this verse from Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. 13, talking about sexual immorality there and a man who joins himself to a a harlot and he talks about all the dangers of that and in the middle of that he says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now think about those two things, the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now the first half of that we kind of understand. That's the idea of holiness. Your body is meant for the Lord. You dedicate it to Him. It's sort of set apart for Him. But then the second side of that, the flip side of that, is not only is our body for the Lord, but the Lord is for our body. What does that mean? Well, what it means is, is that God is a proponent for your body. Or another way to say that is God knows what is best for you. He isn't prescribing something for you whenever He calls for for purity in this area of your life. 
He isn't prescribing something for you that is intended for your ill. When God created the body, He originally designed it. He declared that it was very good. He not only designed it, but He designed the way it should be used and the way it should be enjoyed. He prescribes it, and He prescribes it as a pathway to the greatest uh, fulfillment, the greatest stability, the greatest health, the greatest satisfaction, not just physically, but emotionally and, of course, spiritually. So whenever you think about everything that God is saying when it comes to this issue of purity, Paul wants you to know God is for you. In other words, when you think about what God has to say regarding sexual sin, don't think about it in terms of denial. Think about it in terms of design. What God has designed your body to be, what He's designed you emotionally and spiritually to do and to be, God knows what is best for your happiness and for your health. Waiting and abstaining might seem like it is difficult, but it is best. Abiding faithfully in your marriage through thick and thin might seem like a challenge at times, but it is best. And no pathway that you devise or any person suggests to you will ever trump what the Lord has designed for you. He is for your body. He's designed it. He's designed sexuality even as a gift to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the parameters of marriage. And within that lifelong commitment, God has blessed that union. And so when you engage in impurity, you are saying that you know better than God, better than His design. When you allow someone to lure you into sexual temptation, you're letting them tell you that they know better than God. What is good for your body, for your health? Each time you choose to do that, you violate His design. You deny His unique role as Creator. You assault His wisdom. And you will suffer the consequences. By the way, Paul says in verse 5, this is why we shouldn't behave. He says, in the passion of lust like the Gentiles... Who do not know God. That's sort of another expansion on his idea here. Sexual immorality, it, 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 it shouldn't be a part of our life. This is the will of God that we abstain from it. We abstain from it by, by bringing our body into control. We abstain from it. It's not like the, the, the Gentiles who are out there who do not know God. They don't understand the wisdom of God. They don't understand His design. They're not controlled by His, his uh, truth. They're not controlled by the knowledge of Him and what He has called them to. They are governed, Paul says, by the passion of their lust, the raging desires within them. That's what leads them and guides them. Each day when they go through their life, each evening when they arrive at home, that's what drives them. And we shouldn't be walking in that kind of pathway of unbelief. And then Paul adds to that in verse 6, a further clarification and expansion of what this, this sanctification looks like. 
your sanctification means that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, this matter of sexual immorality. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is not only an issue that brings honor and value to your life, blessing to your life when you follow in it. It's an issue that affects so many people around you and can affect them detrimentally. Paul says, look, you're not to trespass. You're not to, you're not to go beyond the boundaries. That's what the word means. You're not to go beyond the boundaries that God has set. And you're not to wrong or take advantage of or fraud. A number of different ways that word is translated. But the central idea is you're not to do damage to another. And that whole concept has been lost in the modern society that, that assumes that if you have two consenting people, that everything is okay. But you should know better if you know the way God has designed human life. It isn't okay. Whether or not someone is going into impurity willingly or unwillingly, if they are violating the intent of God, you are doing damage to them. Paul doesn't give any kind of details of what wrong he has in mind, but probably should be understood as broadly as possible because when you engage in impurity, whether it is between two married people and you are doing damage to not only your own family, but families on the other side, spouses and children, you're wreaking havoc, it has ripple effects so far beyond you, or whether or not it is between two unmarried people and you're doing damage not only to the emotional integrity of the person that you're with, but to their future spouse and to their future children. You're defrauding, you're taking advantage of someone. And all of this just emphasizes what is really at the central core of sexual immorality, which is a myopic focus, a sinfully self-focused person. That is really at the heart of it all. The heart of it all is that you are placing yourself at center stage with no thought of how much damage you're doing to the person around you, whether it is, as I said, adultery, whether it is fornication, whether it's even pornography, and you're not thinking of that person on the screen as a person who is in desperate need of the gospel. You're just simply thinking of how they can gratify you. But you are so self-centered... And by the way, probably not only in this area of your life, this is just a symptom of a broader problem. The myopic and self-consumed focus. Way too focused on yourself and not focused on others. In fact, you cannot be focused on others and still engage in sexual sin. You can't do it. Oh, but you don't understand when we love each other. I'm just, I just love this person so much. No, you don't. You love yourself. You don't love them. Because if you loved them, you wouldn't defraud them. You wouldn't do damage to them. You'd be thinking about the repercussions of all of your behavior. It is impossible to be focused on others and engage in sexual sin. 
And so it gives us another key, really, to fighting sexual sin, and that is cultivating an attitude of genuine humility. Cultivating an attitude of genuine humility. Developing a regular habit, first of all, of confessing your sin to the Lord and confessing the selfishness that's there, understanding that you are the chief of sinners. And so when you understand that about yourself, you're ready and eager and, and quick to forgive others whenever they have sinned against you. This is one of the issues when you talk to someone who's engaged in sexual sin. It is inevitable that they are swimming in an ocean of self-pity. I mean, you talk to them and and, and they want to tell you about how lonely they are or how difficult their life is or about how their spouse is not doing this or that for them or how how work had been particularly this or that. And and they're just swimming in a world of self-pity and self-focus rather than reflecting on that kind of self-focused sin, they have cast themselves as the victim. Well, you need humility and a heavy dose of it. Confessing all of that stuff to the Lord, seeing just how broad and wide your selfishness has gone. And when you do that, when you begin to confess in that way, when you begin to see the, the real poison of this in your life, it's very difficult for you then to turn around and not have patience with a spouse, with a work situation, with even a health situation, because you see God's grace overwhelmingly in your life. So you begin by focusing on how You have become so self-focused, cultivating that humility. And then, along with that, prioritizing the interest of others above your own, you develop a habit of serving. It begins sometimes with the smallest things, like helping your spouse in whatever task that you can, cleaning up after them as well as after yourself, relieving their burdens in any way that you can. Or if you're not married, pouring yourself into the relieving burdens of those around you, whether it is your parents or your siblings or some needy person or even someone outside of your family, visiting folks in the hospital, volunteering for some ministry, inviting someone into your home who needs to hear the gospel, taking, uh, making efforts to go beyond yourself to Think of people around you and pour yourself into them. Fill your life with the needs of others and you will cut off the root of selfishness that's at the heart of sexual sin. Paul says you need to understand this is defrauding. This is wronging. This is doing damage. That opens up a third basic principle that Paul gives us here on how to protect our purity. We maintain and protect our purity by confirming Conforming to holiness. Conforming to holiness. He says it very simply in verse 7. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. I, I briefly mentioned this earlier. Holiness, this idea of dedicating something or setting apart something for a purpose. You know, in the Old Testament, you had, you had utensils in the tabernacle or in the temple that were declared to be holy, spoons and bowls and poles and all these things. They were declared to be holy, dedicated to the Lord. Not because they were more moral, 
than the other spoon or the other basin or the other bowl. They were not really issues of morality at all, but issues of dedication, what was set apart exclusively for the purpose of God and for the purpose of the worship of Him. Well, that idea of holiness is still at the root whenever you see it in reference to people. When you hear a call to holiness, what you're really hearing is this idea that you have been set apart for God, set apart from sin, set apart from selfishness, set apart from all of those things. And so what Paul is saying about you is that when you were called, you were not called to the selfish pursuit of impurity. You were called to be set apart in service to God, set apart from all of the world's pursuits, set apart from all of the world's standards of morality, set apart so that you offer yourselves and your bodies exclusively to Him. You present your bodies as instruments of righteousness, not instruments of sin. You present yourself to God wholly and completely, not just at certain times. There aren't just certain days of the week or certain hours when you belong to God. You are His all the time. Paul had prayed that they would understand this. You remember back in chapter 3, verse 12, that he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another as we, and for all as we do for you, that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's design for you is that you would grow in this in this status or this place of dedication to him that you would be more and more set apart for him as time goes by and then very quickly a fourth principle that paul gives us here to protect our purity and maintain it we maintain and protect our purity by committing your body to the holy spirit very similar idea but here explicit As it relates to the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now he appeals to this idea of the residency of the Holy Spirit. He has been given to you. And we don't have time to fully develop this, but it's one of the consistent themes that you see from the Apostle Paul whenever he teaches on this issue of purity. The idea that you have been given the Holy Spirit, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, because God has so identified with you, for you then to take the the temple that He has declared in your body and join it together with immorality is is to engage in serious sin. Again, 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says, flee sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You can't just make decisions anymore based on how it affects you. You can't just make decisions anymore based on how you personally feel. You have someone else living inside of you. Much the same way when you get married, when you have children, you realize that your life 
can no longer be lived with the sort of irresponsibility that you had before, perhaps as a single person. Now it has to be lived with the weight of the reality that your decisions, the decisions that you make, affect others who are part of your household, who are part of your life. Well, he's saying here, look, you need to understand the Holy Spirit has been given to you and now he has so identified with you. He has made you his temple that for you to go and engage in sexual sin not only brings shame upon your own name and your own life, it brings shame on his name. And you don't do that lightly. As Paul gave the warning back in verse 6, saying that the one who wrongs his brother is subject to the Lord. He says the Lord is the avenger in all these things. And here in verse 8, he says the one who disregards this disregards God. He's laying on the weight of the reality that you cannot go down this pathway and expect God's blessings. You cannot go down this pathway and expect God's blessings. So the person who comes and says, you know what? I've prayed about this. I, I've prayed. I just feel like God's leading me in this direction. I just feel like God has brought me, brought this person into my life. I mean, we just feel so right for one another and I've prayed about it. I don't know who you're praying to or who you think's answering you. But if you disregard this, you're disregarding God. My fear is that you're praying to yourself. That you have become your own God. You are in a sort of spiritual sounding chamber. Hearing the echoes of your own voice telling you just what you want to hear. But Paul says, look, you defraud someone else in this area, God is going to be the avenger. You disregard this, you disregard God. You might hear all this stuff, you know, look, this is just the problem with churches and religion. They bring all these draconian standards. They're so prudish, so austere, so puritanical. Can't loosen up, can't have any fun. Need to get with the times, need to understand how things have evolved. Paul wants to say something to you. This is not any man's standard. This isn't any man's message. This is the Lord. You reject this, you reject Him. Which is really kind of the final warning that Paul gives over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in more explicit terms. Do not be deceived. Fornicators, the adulterous, the sexually immoral, do not inherit the kingdom of God. That's really the big danger is self-deception. That you think that you are a Christian. You made some profession of faith or you come to church from time to time. But now you're seeing things arising in your life and you're giving into things and you're bowing down to things other than the Lord himself. And you're doing it. And it's showing the real, real reality of where you stand spiritually. You don't stand under God. You stand in bondage to your own sin. The wonderful news is that there's still time for repentance. There's still time for confession and forgiveness. 
that you can confess these sins as well as you can any others. And there's no sin that's beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. And if you have given in to sexual temptation, if you have gone the way of all the world around you and just sort of accepted that and you've been playing the game spiritually, you don't have to do that anymore. You've already tasted the bitter fruits of this. You know by personal experience that what you're doing is not what you're designed to do. That your body and your heart and your mind are telling you that this is rebellion. And God's calling you. And He's telling you, I can cleanse you. I can forgive you. Confess your sins to the Lord and He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will forgive you. He will receive you. He'll send His Holy Spirit to live inside of you and give you the grace to find a life of purity and a life of peace. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here this morning and God is speaking to your heart, God is calling you to Himself, and you know that it's time to repent, I want to encourage you to find me afterward. Share that with me. Share that with someone today that God is calling you to a place of faith and repentance. Let them pray for you. Let them come alongside of you and encourage you. Let them even open up the word of God to you to further explain the gospel so that you can have the assurance of the work of Christ in your heart and life. Father, we're so thankful for the word, how clear it comes to us. We know what your will is. Now help us, Lord, to walk in it. We confess that sanctification involves so much effort. Give us a heart. Give us the stamina. Give us the tenacity to continue the fight, that we might walk before you in a manner that pleases God. We know what pleases you, and it's our heart desire to do it, both now and for all eternity, because you have given to us so much, we owe you our whole life. And Lord, we offer it again today as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.